There was a, um, I'd say, fantastic New Testament scholar, an evangelical scholar around the mid-20th century named F.F. Bruce, and he wrote a, a book, a helpful book, really for the church, called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And these were just sayings in the Gospels that most Christians would say, that, that's hard. What, what does that mean? You know, um, an Old Testament scholar, more recently, Walter Kaiser Jr., I've quoted him before, he wrote a book on hard sayings in the Old Testament. And uh, I think this would qualify as one of those hard sayings. Maybe you read this or you heard it read and you scratched your head wondering, what, what could this mean? What's going on here? And how do we make sense of it as Christians today? And so for each point that I give, and I've, I've tried to do this consistently in Exodus, is to answer the question, how does this point to Jesus in the gospel? And so there'll be a lot of that today. The title of my sermon <clears throat> is The Cost of Rescue. And the big idea, uh, and Paul prayed this, worship, this is from Romans 12.1, worship is the reasonable response to rescue. I want to start by talking about costly love. The verb to love in Greek, uh, it's different from the way we use the word love today. I I think we've gotten into the habit of using this word rather flippantly. You know, we apply it to everything I love, Taco Bell, which I don't really. I like Taco Bell fine. But I'm saying like we use it for fast food. Um, We use it for maybe some things that we, I love hunting, you know. I love Jesus. Well, those things aren't all categorically the same, right? And, and the love that we have for those things isn't the same. So what does the Greek word mean? Well, agapao, the Greek verb, means to love something sacrificially with a view towards pursuing its good. You're loving something. It's going to cost you, right? It's going to cost you energy, effort, money, time. But the goal of this love is to pursue the good of another, right? And ultimately for the glory of God. That's a long definition, but again, love, biblically speaking, is to sacrificially pursue the good of another for the glory of God. Does that make sense? To sacrificially pursue the good of another for the glory of God. So I want to argue that, and I'm going to come back to this at the end, costly love is worship. When we love the way Jesus has loved us, when we imitate our King in our love for each other, it honors and glorifies God. So costly love is worship that imitates the cost of our ransom, the sacrifice of our King. Recall 1 John 3.16, maybe the less famous of the two John 3.16. I love John 3.16. I also love 1 John 3.16. And this is what John said, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to do likewise. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Okay, so this is love. He points to the cross. Jesus laid down his life for us. He sacrificially pursued our good, and we're to love just like that. And when we do that, we honor, worship, and glorify God. And again, we're going to come back to this at the end. How do we know that God loves us? I hope and pray if you're a follower of Jesus, you've never questioned God's love for you. Where do you have to look? Where can you look right away to dispel any doubt that God loves you if you're a follower of Jesus? Where do you look? The cross. How do we know that God loves us? The overwhelming cost of our salvation. As we just sang, Jesus 
paid it all. Amen? He paid it all. He gave his life. What is the reasonable response to this love, this cost? We are to imitate this costly love toward others. I recently had a dear brother give me a costly gift. Do you think the next thing he said was, I'm giving you this, Chris, because I hate you? No. He said, I'm giving you this because I love you, bro. It was his way of showing love for me. I was so honored by that. I knew that by giving me this gift, this costly gift, this brother loved me. He didn't even have to say it. He did. He said, I wanted to give you this because I love you, ma'am. I'm thankful for you. And I said, oh, I appreciate that so much. So here's the question I want us to think about. And again, we're going to come back to this. How are you currently giving of your life, your resources, your time to love others in the church like Jesus? This is worship. This is worship. All right, so let's talk about our passage. What's the context here? Everybody knows what a census is. It's a count, right? You're, you're counting people. We do that. We're, we're familiar with, a, I mean, anytime you drive through a city, you're going to see the name of that city or town and the population size. How did they come up with that number? They did a what? They did a census. So in ancient times, it was common for a nation like Israel to take a census, especially to determine the size of their what? Their military. Their military. And by doing this, <clears throat> this would instill confidence, and it would draw attention to their might, their power, and their potential threat to surrounding nations. Like, we're not going to mess with that nation because they have a massive military presence. It'd be foolish. And yet, the purpose of this particular census that we just read about was not for Israel's glory, but for whose glory? It was for God's glory. The temptation was for the census to become motivation for personal boasting. Yeah, we're, we're pretty big. We're a pretty big nation. We've got a pretty uh, big army, military power, military presence. We're, we're an opposing force. The census taken of such a large nation was a reminder of God's great work of salvation on Israel's behalf. The, the size of the nation corresponded to the size of God's rescue of his people. It is a reminder. The, the census was a reminder that this massive number of people, God's people, had been saved by God and thus belonged to God. You're mine. That is what this passage screams. You're mine. That's what God says. You're mine. I know each and every one of you in your mind. The census was for God's glory. I, I want to answer this question, and I have four points to begin with. What does this census, the census tax specifically, teach us about the Lord? Number one, the Lord owns us. The Lord owns us. I hope you realize that. If you're here, the Lord owns you. He made you. You're his. But it's deeper than that, and we'll get there shortly. Verses 11 and 12. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them. Here's the reason, that there be no plague among them when you number them. The Lord dictates the terms of his covenant relationship with his people. 
He calls the shots. We've seen that in Exodus. God calls the shots. He commands his people to take a census and to make a ransom payment for their lives. And I'll, I'll unpack that because I'm sure that sounds strange. They're to make a ransom payment for their lives? What is going on here? What we're meant to see, again, point number one, the Lord owns us. Israel's very well-being was in the hands of who? Their very well-being was in the hands of God. They would be reminded of this while paying the ransom price. The ransom price, which was half a shekel, was to make atonement for their lives and thus protect them against the wrath of God. The text says that there be no plague among them. As David Murray writes, God had their health and their lives in his hands. Now, is this the first time we've heard this, that Israel belonged to God? Is this new to any of us? No, this has been emphasized throughout Exodus. If you recall Exodus 4, so we're going all the way back to chapter 4, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn, what? My son, my firstborn son. Israel collectively belonged to the Lord as his firstborn son. Later, in Exodus 13, 13, God established the principle that every firstborn belonged to him and had to be redeemed by a sacrifice. The census tax was a reminder that Israel belonged to God. Let me quote A.W. Pink here. This is really helpful. This is from Mr. Pink. He wrote, When God numbers or orders anything, which happens quite a bit in the Bible, So think about this, when God numbers or orders anything to be numbered, taking the sum of them denotes that they belong to him. And that he, here's the kicker, right? This is the implication. Because they belong to him, Pink says, he has the sovereign right to do with them as he pleases. The action itself says of the things numbered, these are mine. These are mine and I assign them their place as I will. These are mine, and I'll do with them what I want. (laughs) So how does this point to Jesus in the gospel? If you've trusted in Jesus, I I want you to walk away with this church, and I'm borrowing this concept from another brother that I've read. If you're a Christian, if Jesus is your king, then you are doubly, doubly or twice owned by God. Man, what you saying twice owned by God? Twice owned? What does that mean, twice owned by God? Tim Chalice, in his book, Run to Win, I've given, we as a church have given out probably 100 copies of this. I've read this with many men in this church. But in this book, he makes the argument that God owns your body. He's talking to Christians. If you're a Christian, God owns your body as its creator. Who made us? God, therefore, who owns us? God. But then this is what he says, and I love this. And God owns your body as its Savior. Right? So he owns your body as its creator. But if you're a Christian and you've been redeemed and the price has been paid for your rescue, then he owns your body as its Savior as well. Recall 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Again, he's writing to Christians. He's talking to the church. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, 
<laughs> I mean, there's nothing subtle about that. Paul says to Christians, you are not your own. Why? For you were bought with a price. Ooh, you were purchased. So what do we do? Glorify God in your body. You're his. Christian, look at me, Christians. The Lord owns you. He owns you. You're his. And this came at a what? It came at a price. And this price, as we've sung about this morning, thank you, brother, is the life of his son, Jesus Christ. And this magnificent price brings us to our next point, number two. The Lord values you. He doesn't just own you, Christian. He values you. Amen? And again, you can never doubt that. Why? Because of the what? The cross. I think a child say that? Thank you, bud. The Lord values us. Verses 14 and 15 again. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Now listen to this. This is verse 15. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less, which means they both are called to give the same amount. That's really important. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make what? Atonement. Atonement for your lives. What does a ransom assume? A ransom. A ransom, I think, I'm going to define the word here shortly, but I think we all get what a ransom is, right? A ransom assumes a price, a cost. With a ransom, a price is paid which results in the release of something or someone, right? A a price is demanded, and when that price is paid, that something or someone is released. Everybody got it? That's ransom. Now, in the case of the census tax, the rich and the poor paid the same amount. The poor were not exempt, and the rich were not required to pay more. What this conveyed was that God valued each life equally. Every adult was to be counted, and every life, every life was of equal worth to God. Oh, this is good. The census tax was the Lord's way of saying, I see you, I value you, and I will provide for you so that we can be together. I see you, I value you, and I'll provide the means for us to be together. What does the Lord specifically value about us, his people? What does he value about us? I'll tell you, a relationship. A relationship. He longs. He longs to be with his people. How do we know that? How do we know that he longs to be with us? To what great lengths did he go to make that a reality? The Father gave his Son. Amen? God values a relationship with us. He values us so much that he makes a way. Amen? He makes a way. How does this point to Jesus in the gospel? I feel like I have to say it, but I'm going to. This is most clearly seen with the cross. The matchless sacrifice of the Son by the Father for, everybody look at each other, for us, for us. A price had to be paid, had, 
This was not optional. A price had to be paid for God to be with his people. The Father, man, I love, we're going to be in John soon. But we're going to look at John, specifically John 3.16 now here shortly. But the Father values us so much that he sent his most valued son, his only son, to die for us in our place so that we might be with him. And all God's people said, amen. So we all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Everybody say only son. Okay, let me give you a little Greek here. Because that's the phrase I want to highlight. But let's read the rest of the verse. So, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have what? Eternal life. Okay. Christian, you can never question your value before God. You can't. You can't. What specific value has God placed on his people? The life of his son, Jesus Christ. And again, how does John describe the son? In John 3.16, Jesus is referred to as the only son. Ton huion, ton, you ready for this word? Monogeny. <laughs> what is that word, monogeny? The Greek word there, we translate in the ESV as only. But you know what it really means? Unique, one of a kind. The father gave his unique, one of a kind, nobody like him son for us. He gave up. His unique, one-of-a-kind, nobody-like-him son for us. Does that resonate with you? He gave up his unique, one-of-a-kind, no-one-like-him son for us. That is good news. Amen? And that good news is meant to do two things. I believe it is meant to instill awe and it is meant to motivate unity amongst God's people. Awe, A-W-E, in that God would give up his beloved, unique, one-of-a-kind son for us. That should leave us in wonder. Why? Wow! In unity, in realizing that this same price was paid for all of God's people. Amen? Recall Paul's words in Galatians 3.28. You can write this down. I don't think I put it in your handout. Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is simply saying that if you're in Christ, guess what? You're united. You're with another body of believers. These other things, now does gender matter? Yes. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying at the foot of the cross, we're all equal, we're all a family, amen? Amen. If you look, at, look at your neighbor really fast. Just look at him. Don't say anything. Just look at him. Look at your other neighbor. I, I want you to think, okay, if I asked my neighbor this question, what would they say? Here's the question. Why are you here? What has made you right with God? Hopefully, you would all get the same answer because there's only one right answer. But again, if you looked at your neighbor and said, why are you here? Why are you a part of God's church? Why are you right with God? What makes you right with God? And all of us would have the same answer. It's by his blood. It's by his blood. His death in my place that the price for my rescue from sin was paid. Amen? 
Let me just quote more, Brother Philip Ryken. This was really helpful. He says, The blood of God's Son is the true basis. It is the true basis for the full equality of every member of the church. Our rescue demands a price, and the price was the life of Jesus, namely his death in our place, which brings us to number three. Again, the question is, what does the census tax teach us about the Lord? Number one, the Lord owns us. Number two, the Lord values us. Number three, the Lord saves us. The Lord saves us. The, the census tax, which in our passage is literally described as atonement money, was God's gracious means of providing atonement for his people. It prevented what? What does the text say? It prevented the outbreaking of God's wrath against his people. No plague among them. Now, here's what we got to see. Okay, everybody just kind of look up here. Take a deep breath. Don't miss this part. Here's what we got to see. <gasps> this particular payment, the half shekel, did not atone. Hear me again. It did not atone for the sin of God's people. What the Lord has already established in his word. What is the only thing that can atone for our sin? The shedding of blood, a sacrifice, a substitution. However, the atonement money paid did rescue them from the plague of God. It was a reminder. It was a pointer to the need for payment. Specifically, the need for payment to be made for rescue from the wrath of God. Again, how does this point to Jesus in the gospel? I hope it's clear. <laughs> I'm reminded of Mark 10.45. What did Jesus say in Mark 10.45? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. There's that word. For many, the Lord saves us through a ransom price. Again, a ransom means to rescue or deliver by a substitute, a price. The, the Hebrew word for ransom, kofar. Everybody say kofar. That was beautiful. You guys are Hebrew speakers. Kofar. It simply refers to the price of a life. The price of a life. What price did God pay so that we might live with him forever? He paid the price of his what? Of his son. Amen. Jesus died so that we might live and be forever spared from the wrath of God. Look around that we all justly deserve. Amen? Oh, man, that's good news. That is good news. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 knowing, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but, everybody say but, but with the precious blood of who? Of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And finally, number four. The Lord remembers us. Isn't that cool? Isn't that encouraging? The Lord remembers us. He knows us. Verse 16. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it. This is good. I'm going to come back to this as well. Shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting. 
that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So the census tax was to be a reminder that Israel belonged to who? They belonged to God. That they were his holy and set-apart people. And it was a reminder that God remembers and knows his own. He remembers and knows his people. God will never forget his people. And all God's people said, God will never, ever forget his people. And not only that, but we too are called to remember. This is a massive theme in Exodus. Remember. Everybody say remember. Don't forget because what do we see in Judges when God's people forget what happens? Bad things. Bad things. Let's talk about remembering. Recall the Passover and the numerous special days on Israel's calendar. All of these were meant to draw their attention to the Exodus. They were reminders. They were reminders of who God was and what he did and why it mattered. Amen? And we have similar reminders as well. Why do we take the Lord's Supper? To be reminded of who God is and what he's done. How does this point to Jesus in the gospel? Now, as a culture, we memorialize important dates, don't we? Birthdays. Who celebrates birthdays? Our family goes big. Husbands, anniversaries, do not forget that date. You will be in trouble. Right, guys? We have these dates on our calendars, and when they come around annually, what do we do? We pause and we remember, we celebrate. We commemorate these important dates, these important events with our loved ones, our our family, and our friends. Christians, this is why we gather. We gather to remember. We gather to remember together the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ, our King. We gather to remember the gospel. So if someone asks you, maybe a coworker, why do you go to church? Why do you gather to remember the gospel? And then share it with them. The Lord graciously provides reminders in the lives of his people to memorialize his gracious work of rescue and the primary implication of that rescue, which is this. You're mine. You're mine. You belong to me. Not not me. You belong to the Lord, right? These reminders were further meant to bring Israel's attention to the fact that God remembers his people. Again, why do we take the Lord's Supper? To be reminded, to remember what Christ has done through his death to save sinners like us. Let me read Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. This is a really important passage in the life of God's church. What does the writer of Hebrews say? And let us consider how to stir up one another, the Greek there, to provoke in a good way, right? To provoke one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as the day draws near, right? So what are we called to do, church? We're called to not neglect this gathering. We're called to therefore gather faithfully weekly. Why? To stir up one another to love and good works. 
in part. Everybody say part. That was a weak part. Okay. Part of this stirring up is reminding others in the church of what Christ has done for us. So if you neglect this gathering, what are you not going to have happen to you? You're not going to be reminded. And if you neglect this gathering, what are you not going to be able to do for others? Remind them. So don't neglect this gathering. And all God's people said, amen. Let me end this section with the main idea of verse 16. And that is that God remembers us. God remembers us. John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus said, and I know them. Oh, (laughs) I know them. Isn't that sweet? I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one, ooh, this is good, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He remembers us, he knows us, and he has us. Christians, we know, we know that the Lord remembers us because he constantly lives to bring us before the Father in prayer. What is Jesus doing for us right now? What does the Bible say? He's what? He's interceding, which means he's praying for us. He's bringing us before, he remembers us. He's bringing us before the Father. He remembers us. He knows us. Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, always lives, always lives to make intercession for them. This is going to be brief, but I think it's important that we answer this question as well. The first question was, what does the census tax teach us about the Lord? And we've answered that. The second question is this, what does the census tax teach us about man? Number one, what do we need? We need saving. I think everybody got that, right? I know some of you guys, you're cheaters. You like to fill in the blanks before I get there. We need saving. So if you put saving, you got it right. We need saving. We need atonement. Why? Because we're what? All of us, we're sinners. And because we're sinners, what do we justly deserve? What do we rightfully deserve? God's wrath, his eternal wrath. We deserve hell. We need a ransom. Have you accepted by faith the ransom price of Jesus on your behalf? Have you trusted in Jesus as the all-sufficient substitute for your salvation from the wrath of God? Trust in Jesus because he paid it all. Amen? He paid it all. And number two, the reasonable response, the reasonable response to God's rescue is what? It's worship. It's worship. Those who have been rescued are called to worship. This is really what this passage is all about. We don't simply give the Lord a half shekel. We give him our whole life. Amen? We give him our very life. This is a very interesting point, and it's one that we can easily miss. Verse 16, listen again. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, which is the tabernacle, right? 
We spend a lot of time talking about the tabernacle. The money from the census tax was to be used in the construction and upkeep of the tabernacle. It was to be used in supporting the worship of the Lord. It was given. It was a money given for the glory of God in response to what he'd given them. Amen? And that is reasonable. That is appropriate. He gave us everything. And we're called in response to give him our very lives. And what's interesting, if you think about it, if you step back and think about it, everyone's given this tax, right? Who would it benefit? If it was used in the worship of the Lord and the construction and upkeep of the tabernacle, it would benefit all of God's people. Amen? It would benefit everybody. Worship is the proper response to rescue. And this, what does it involve? Sacrificially giving for the good of others. That's love. Amen? That's worship. Recall Romans 12.1 once again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice for the Lord. For this is your what? The Greek word is, so most translations have this is your spiritual worship, but the Greek word is logikos, which is the word that we get logical from. This is your reasonable worship. It makes sense that we would give him our very lives in response to him giving us his very life. Amen? So our reasonable response to God's rescue is worship. Christ gave himself for us, and now we are called to give our lives to him as our reasonable response to rescue. Let me end with this. What might reasonable worship in response to God's rescue look like? What does this look like in everyday life? Three things. Number one, give of your time to serve the church, fellow believers, toward Christ-likeness. Give of your time. That's costly, right? I mean, time is valuable. It's one of those resources we never get back. Once it's spent, it's gone. Paul in Ephesians 5 5 talks about the importance of stewarding your time because the days are evil. Use your time well. So what might this look like? I would say, number one, give of your time to serve the church. Again, the question is, what might reasonable worship in response to God's rescue look like? Give of your time to serve the church, to serve fellow brothers and sisters in Christ toward Christ-likeness. How are you right now using your time to help others grow in conformity to Christ in this church? Number two, give of your resources. Give of your resources to support the church, namely its ministries and ministers. And number three, oh, invest in your relationship with King Jesus by spending time daily reading the Bible and praying. And we have to remember this. If, if you don't get this, then we're in big trouble. We must remember that we cannot purchase our atonement, our rescue. Amen? Can we purchase it? Is there anything that we can actually do to make ourselves right with God? That's what atonement means, at one mint, right? At one mint. Because of sin, we're divided and separated, so something had to be done to make us at one or to reconcile us to God. Can we do anything? Can we pay anything to be right with God? Say it in Spanish. No. Good. Only Christ can do that, and only Christ has done that. 
He paid with his perfect life and sacrificial death. And all God's people said, amen. He paid it all. Have you accepted his ransom, his ransom on your behalf by faith, by trusting in him? If yes, if you'd say, yes, Chris, I have. I've, I've admitted I'm a sinner and I can do nothing to save myself. Only Jesus, only because of what he did through living a life I can't live. He perfectly obeyed God's law. And then he died in my place. I mean, he, he took the penalty that I deserve, and then he rose again. I believe that. If that's you, then what should you do? I try to end this way every week. You, me, us, should get busy telling others the good news that Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. Jesus, you paid it all. You gave your life. Father, you sent, you gave your unique, one-of-a-kind, nobody else like him, son, for us. And for that, we are thankful. I pray that in response to that wonderful, matchless gift, that we would both be in awe and that we would strive for gospel unity and that we would boldly take this good news to our friends and neighbors and classmates and co-workers and family members and call the lost to turn from sin and to accept the ransom price, Jesus, your life, your death on behalf of sinners to make us right with God. We thank you for that good news. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.